Good evening to our neighbors and listeners. Coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown, you are listening to the award-winning InfoHub Hour with Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Phillies Freedom John. The InfoHub Hour is all about news and engagement in Germantown, and you can check out what is going on by visiting our website at www.germantowninfohub.org. It has been a very heavy weekend given the mass shooting that occurred this past weekend on South Street, where some folks gathered after the Roots picnic. Sadly, the shooting left 10 people injured and three people dead. The incident gained national attention due to the recent mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo in the past few weeks. For today's show, we have partnered with Kuvinda Media, who helped one mother in Philadelphia share her story about helping her son recover from a tragic shooting that almost took his life. The podcast is called Stronger Every Day Healing After Gun Violence, where a mother talks about her experience, which hopefully will allow folks to understand that gun violence is not just a life or death situation. It is not just an interpersonal occurrence. There are long-term battles and journeys that people have to go through after surviving a shooting and when these incidents are no longer a part of the headlines. Hopefully, this story will bring some life to that. Before we play this podcast, we would like to shout out to Sean Strother, the mother in this podcast, Kuvinda Media, and the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence for helping to produce this. We would also like to shout out the Stonely Foundation and the Independence Public Media Foundation for supporting this effort. Kuvinda Media shared on their Twitter that nearly 1,900 people have been shot and killed in Philadelphia during the past five years, and more than 7,300 others have been shot and survived. Stronger Every Day, Healing After Gun Violence tells the story of how one family is navigating the aftermath. And without further ado, we present the first half of that podcast to our listeners and neighbors of Germantown. I worked for Temple at that time, and I got a text because, you know, we get the text message every time someone would get shot and are on their way to Temple Hospital. So I did get the um, text message 620 and it came up, gunshot victim on Temple campus, Broyden Jefferson, and police are taking them to the hospital. I got that text message, but I didn't realize that that was my son until the doctor called and which was like a minute or so later. And that, that was really just horrible. I don't wish that call on anyone. They say your life can change in an instant. This is the story of that moment for our family. I'm Tashawn Struther. And this is Stronger Every Day, Healing After Gun Violence, produced by the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting, Covenda Media, and me. My son, Walter Willis, was the one who was shot, but he gave me permission to share our story from my perspective. And even though you won't hear much from Walter, He sat in on most of the conversations recorded during the production of this podcast 
which took place over Zoom because of the pandemic. Walter did record his reflections on his progress and goals, which you'll be hearing later on. On New Year's Eve of 2019, I dropped my son Walter off to get a haircut. Drove home and had only been home in my house for about 20 minutes when I got that text message. And then that phone call from one of the doctors at Temple. The barber wasn't finished with the client that was before him. So he walked out and he was doing some shopping and he was over by the fresh grocer on Temple campus. He was coming up the back, I guess, off of Jefferson and coming up the the back way to go to the store. And three guys came out and um, pulled a gun on him. And I wouldn't expect that six o'clock in the evening with so many people around that that would have happened. And with all the cameras, the officer actually, you know, came with the car and put him in the car and took him up to Temple campus because he felt that if he didn't get him there right away, he wasn't going to make it. And I'm so thankful for the detective. And they took him to the hospital and I guess that's what saved his life. So as people say, you know, that the police aren't always good. There are some good police officers out there. It was one of my fears of him being out and being a victim of gunshot violence, whether that was as a result of maybe police contact or just simply, you know, going out, getting a haircut and being robbed and shot. So there's been quite a few documentaries on TV where people are talking about that. And it's so true because, you know, gunshot victim, person shot, they survived. But what is survival? Because, you know, my greatest fear was him being shot. But this has been a challenge way more than anything I could have ever expected. I'm so glad that he lived, but I'll say it's surviving, but it's not living because he's not able to have that normal day-to-day. I just remember that night, like when I got the phone call to come to the hospital, I can't remember his name. I have it written down somewhere. But he was like, "Um, are you Walter's mom? And he was like, you need to come right now. You, You need to come now. He's been shot and you need to come right now. That was like the scariest moment for me. I remember having to call my family and not wanting to. 
I have one younger sister, Natasha Lassiter. She and Walter have always been close. When I called Tasha, she and her husband were at a wedding. Her husband was actually in the wedding. I wasn't checking my phone. You know, I was in church and I just remember she called several times and I eventually called back, but it was after the wedding and I went across the hall. And I'm like, Tasha, I I hate to call you and tell you this, but, you know, the doctor just called. Walt's been shot. You were really calm. You were like, "Um, I think you need to get to the hospital. Your nephew was shot and um, you may want to get up here. And all I know is I just kind of dropped. I just remember dropping to the floor because it just shocked me, I guess. And she screamed so loud that I can feel my blood from hearing that scream. Like, I still hear it in my mind. This very nice lady, I don't know her name, I don't know anything. She just said, are you okay? And I was like, no. I said, well, I'm here for a wedding. My husband is Dwayne. I think he's taking pictures. So she immediately took me into, I guess, an office and she just started praying with me. And I was just crying uncontrollably. And I remember her just praying with me and she asked me Walter's name. I told her and she just prayed with me. And then I just I remember just telling my husband, I said, well, I said, we have to go to Temple. Walter was shot. You know, they came and when they got to the hospital, my brother-in-law thought, that Walt was dead because my sister couldn't get herself together. And I think she just cried all the way to the hospital. And it wasn't until he got there that he realized that Walt wasn't dead. And he was like, oh, my God, Shawnee, I couldn't get anything out of your sister. I thought Walt was dead, (laughs) you know, and just the trauma of even just having to say those words to your family. My mom, she was a nervous wreck. My dad was trying to get her together. (sighs) And we all came down and, you know, we sat there. His friends were there. You know, everybody was there rooting for you all. You're loved. You know that, right? It just felt very unreal, and um, and I was just trying to process it. And, and I don't know if I was trying to get ahead of myself and brace myself for the worst case scenario. I don't know. I, but at the same time, I was trying to be uh, hopeful. I just didn't know enough. And then, um, but I was feeding off of Shawnee because I felt like she was very calm. I saw her cry one time one time and we were um i think we were all kind of at the um inside the cafeteria and i think the doctors may have said that you know it just wasn't looking too good or something like that and and she broke down and she started crying that was my and she's like i don't want him to die and i remember her just crying really really hard and um and I, again, like I said, I was feeding off of her because 
I just saw her strength. Like, she was really strong during all this. And the other person that I was really feeding off was my dad. You know how, like, when your parents tell you, or you, you believe that everything's going to be okay, but they tell you it's going to be okay. And I believed it. I just remember in the beginning days, you know, Walt, you can't give up. He was laying in the bed, and I'm sure he could hear me, but, you know, he was hooked up to all kinds of tubes and breathing tube, respirator, <sighs> trach. He just had tubes everywhere. But I had this little red book, <laughs> and it's a prayer book, and I would just you know, read prayers from it to him every day. And just reminding him not to give up because I was so scared that he wasn't going to fight like he needed to. And he really had to fight. It was a battle. Walters had so many challenges so many infections. He had a dozen surgeries and other procedures at Temple University Hospital. It was just unbelievable, all the things that he went through. And Dr. Jessica Beard has been great. She's a great doctor, a great person. And Dr. Beard included me in every step of Walter's recovery. The most profound thing about our initial experience together, Walter, I, and his family is this incredible bond that sort of immediately I had with Tashawn, Walter's mom. And, you know, we were in it together from the very beginning. As soon as we got up to the ICU, she was there at the bedside. We were talking. I was explaining everything. And, you know, sometimes that resuscitation of the patient, that critical care of a patient who's so severely injured is even more intense than the surgery. So it was just hours and hours of trying to get ahead of that bleeding and correct the what we call coagulopathy or the thin blood. And Walter's mom was right there. Uh, we were really a team. And, you know, that's a lot of the time the way that I feel about my relationship with patients is, is that, you know, the patient and I are there together. And obviously I have a huge team too, you know, so I don't think Walter would have survived without kind of the expertise of all of our team members, but honestly also without this incredible support from his mother and from his family. His grandparents were there and they were just so incredibly compassionate towards me too. You know, that was a huge part of it. So, and I think that one night was the very beginning of our relationship that's really sustained now over two years in an effort to heal Walter from this single gunshot wound. He came in to our hospital. He came into an area of the hospital that we resuscitate patients called the trauma bay. It's sometimes an area where we need to do emergency surgery to save a patient's life. Um, and Walter was shot in his left back over the area where his kidney was. And we were able to see that the bullet ended up in the right side of his belly, although we don't know exactly where when we do the x-rays. And he was very unstable when he came into the hospital with a low blood pressure, 
clearly that he was essentially bleeding out or what we call in shock from bleeding. So we immediately took him to the operating room, started giving him blood transfusions and attempted to get control over the many sources of bleeding that he had in his abdomen. One of the things that we had to do was remove one of his kidneys that was essentially just bleeding profusely. One of the large blood vessels that supplies his intestines was bleeding. We had to ligate that. There were many holes in his intestines as well, as well as an injury to his pancreas and his gallbladder and his liver. So, you know, this one bullet caused just a ton of destruction on its pathway. And this particular bullet, too, was a big one and a very destructive one. I've actually never seen a bullet completely transect or cut across a loop of intestine. Um, And so in one of the paths of the bullet, his intestine was just completely separated from itself, not even a hole, but just blown apart. Um, And that was in an area of the intestine that is a very sensitive area where there's a lot of structures around it. So it was almost during that surgery, it was like at one moment we were winning and then another moment we were losing and blood pressure was low and we were giving blood transfusions. And we did, you know, what's called a damage control surgery. We're just trying to control the life-threatening things right now and do an abbreviated surgery with a plan to return to do more surgery. So we did that. And then we brought Walter up to the ICU. And I can still remember, you know, what room he was in. I remember the computer that I sat at looking at his labs and we just ordering blood transfusion after blood transfusion, more than 40 units of blood just in the surgery. And then after that, many, many more units of blood. And when somebody has that amount of blood loss, their blood becomes very thin. So I gave him medications to try to thicken up his blood, different types of blood products, because there's no surgery that can help that when we get to that point. And that's really one of the areas that in my kind of specialty, that is a big, big challenge. Uh, And that's what he was, you know, fighting with after the surgery. When he was in the ICU and the doctors would come and they would do rounding, the whole team, They were just great, you know. They would explain things to me. We would have conversations about his health, and they would even let me have input into, you know, how he was treated in a sense. You know, I kind of struggled with him being on so many different um, pain medicines and opioids and You know, (laughs) I know I probably got on their nerves, but I'm like, we got to get them off. We got to get them off. We got to give them the lowest dosage. We got to work through this. Walter's never been one that talks a lot. But my sister, Tasha, could always get him to open up and talk. But he couldn't speak to her couldn't speak to any of us at all for four months between the trach and the breathing tube and the feeding tube and the ventilator and his vocal cords being so sensitive from all of that he just wasn't able to I would give him a pad a clipboard and give him a pen And he would try to write some things down. Sometimes it was really hard to (laughs) read what he put on there. And I don't know 
in the beginning if he was really coherent. And I don't know if all of like his motor skills and cognitive skills had returned fully at that point. But I remember asking him, you know, what's your name? Do you know your name? Can you write your name? And he wrote it and it was wobbly. I still have it somewhere. I kept it so I could show him, you know, you wrote your name. So that was, yeah, that was a good time. We kind of talked like that for a month or so. And I remember when they um, put a little piece on the trach that would allow him to have vocals and the um, therapist would come in to try to teach him how to talk again. And the first time he heard his voice, it scared him and he didn't talk anymore. He wouldn't do it. Sometimes, you know, with that piece on the trach, it can make you feel like you can't breathe. So I think that is what scared him more than anything. But I remember when they they were telling him to sing, it was a, a nursery rhyme. I don't know if it was Old MacDonald or something like that. And he said, oh, when he heard it and it scared him and his eyes got really big and he stopped. I was actually on the phone with him when he realized he could speak again. He couldn't speak. like So we would talk to him through the iPad and... I want to say it was Easter or something like that. They finally took the trach out or whatever it was. And I said, oh, I really can't wait for you to speak again. I was just talking to him. I think he might have just been nodding his head or he spoke. And we it both scared us. I was like, oh! And I cried so hard, like on the phone. Like I couldn't believe that he spoke. He called me. He called me one day and... He just called and he was talking and I was like, what? <laughs> You're talking? And then the nurses and everyone started calling. He's talking, he's talking. It's like, yeah. He just one day started talking. Walter was in the hospital for nine months. From New Year's Eve of 2019 until September of 2020. When he came home, we were so excited because he'd been away for so long, going to different facilities. And I just felt like coming home would help him to heal mentally. I just think about when Walter had to go to a nursing home. And that was a horrible experience. He fell into deep depression, deep, deep depression. And he was a 31-year-old in a nursing home with elderly. When I say elderly, I'm talking late 70s, 80s. He's in the room with people like that. And I would know sometimes he would call and he'd say, Mom, get me out of here. Get me out of here. I can't take it. I can't take it. And I'm listening to the person that's 
in the bed next to him and they're moaning and they're groaning and it was just a horrible experience. And, you know, he needed to come home. And Dr. Beard also advocated for him to come home instead of being in the nursing home because it wasn't helping. It was was almost as if he deteriorated while he was in the nursing home. So yes, just having those resources, having people that can advocate for you, having the information you need to make decisions that will help you to move to the next level. Like when I made the decision for Walter to come home, I had no idea how I was going to make that work. But I knew that I didn't want him to not survive because we had come too far for him to sink back into that hole. And (laughs) I don't know how I did it, but I went to the hospital. I was like, you know, you guys just show me, show me what I need to do. Give me that patient education and I will do it. I learned how to do so many things. Walter came home with open wounds in his chest, stomach, intestines, everything just exposed. And I was scared changing his wounds, giving him IV fluids and tube feedings. I felt like a nurse. It was so much work trying to keep him from getting infections, but we made it until February. One day we just woke up with a fever and it it was 98 or something like that. And then I went to take the temperature again and it was like 103 and he was burning up. So had to call the ambulance to come get him and take him to the hospital And I didn't go to the hospital with them that time. I felt so bad, but I was tired, you know. So he went to the hospital and I called Dr. Beard and she let them know he was coming. And, you know, so they were ready and prepared and everyone knew it because we were always there. So he went that last time and he, he stayed And he hated being in the hospital, which I understand because I don't think, (laughs) I don't even know how I would have made it being in a hospital for such a long period of time. Walter has lost a lot of weight. And with the infection setting him back, Dr. Beard felt it was better for him to stay in the hospital until April when he was having his major surgery. He needed to be so much stronger to be able to survive the surgery. That was a nine-hour surgery. And after the surgery, well, they stopped the surgery because he was so weak, you know, and she was afraid that if she continued that he wouldn't make it. And, you know, his lungs collapsed twice and they didn't know what was going on and he had to go back have a couple of procedures in interventional radiology. And that was just scary. We had a nurse come into the house a few times a week after Walter came home for the first time. 
But when Walter went back into the hospital and was there for so long, we almost had to start the process over again. So when he was home again after his surgery during that summer of 2021, I was taking care of Walter myself until we were able to get a new aid. Every now and then I would let someone come over to help, but I was so scared for Walt. I really didn't want to compromise and have people around and him get COVID, you know what I mean? On top of everything else. So I kept the circle small. I was like the all over hospital worker. I was the nurse. I was the nutritionist. I was the CNA. I was the environmental services. I was just everything because all of the things that they were doing in the hospital with all of these different people, I did that myself for Walter. And it was hard. Waking up in the middle of the night, he might be in pain or needed something or, you know, just not even really sleeping that great because I'm worried, you know, about him. Walter didn't eat for a year and a half. So the first time Walter ate was, he had the surgery in April, probably May. So he didn't eat from December 31st, 2019 until May of 2021. So he lost a lot of weight, 40, 50 pounds. But because his stomach, they had to almost do like a gastric bypass, I guess you would say. So his stomach is much smaller. And he's probably not going to gain so much weight. But until he gains some weight and gets the strength, Dr. Beer's not going to do it until she feels like he's strong enough because it's going to take a toll on his body. And I think that's another thing that we've kind of dealt with. You know, he went into the hospital, he had this surgery, and then he had his recovery period. Then you have to have another surgery. And that um, sets you back again. So then you have to recover. So it's just like a vicious cycle. You go through it and you have to take the necessary steps to do a procedure to get him to the next step. But getting him to that next step is going to set him back. It's going to help, but it's going to set him back. So we've been just going through that. So we're in the process now of trying to get him strong enough to have that surgery. Because when he has this surgery, it's going to be another long surgery and He's already had the challenge of lung collapse and just everything, so. I just feel like I still walk around 
on eggshells. And I still haven't, the adrenaline hasn't stopped. And <laughs> I guess eventually, I, I know I think about it a lot now. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's been almost two years and I'm just so tired. But I can't stop because if I stop, then he may stop and I need him to keep fighting. So I have to keep fighting, but I'm really tired. Like just emotionally, I haven't had a chance to have that woo-saw moment. And I think that it's wearing or has worn on my body. Some days I feel like I'm really depressed about this whole situation. But, you know, what can I do? But keep going. That was the first half of Stronger Every Day. Please join us on June 23rd for the second half of the podcast, plus an interview with the voice and mother of the podcast, Tashawn Strother, as we discuss the making of the podcast and why she wanted to do this. For folks who want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you can visit www.kuvindamedia.com. And we also encourage folks to follow Kuvinda Media at Kuvinda Media on Twitter. And well, Germantown, it is about that time. But you know, if you have a story that you want to hear covered, you can always contact us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com, or you can text infohub to 73224 to start asking us some questions. And additionally, we encourage our listeners to text the equally informed Philly text line, which is another program under Resolve Philly, which allows Philadelphians to gain access to information regarding Philadelphia resources. Equally Informed Philly is a direct response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and their team works to bridge the information divide, reducing barriers for vulnerable residents who need trustworthy information to live and thrive in Philadelphia. They also invest deeply in the underestimated voices and community storytellers. Equally Informed provides a community-driven print newsletter and the Equal Info text line, a free bilingual English and Spanish question and answer texting service that also provides vetted local news and resources to subscribers. And to start asking them some questions, you can text equal info to And before we sign off, I just want to share two resources that have been helping communities heal from the traumatic effects of gun violence. The first is equally informed survivors. So Equally Informed Philly also runs Equally Informed Survivors, which is a text line, and it centers around gun violence crisis in Philadelphia. And by texting survivors to 73224, you can be connected with free resources, community efforts and solutions, and local solutions-focused reporting. And again, that's the Equally Informed Survivors text line, and you can text survivors to 73224 to start receiving some of those resources. And additionally, we encourage folks to visit uptheblock.org. Up the Block is a free guide to the tools, resources, and people who can help you navigate your Philadelphia community, especially if you or people you know have been affected by gun violence. This project was created and is maintained by The Trace, which is a nonprofit newsroom dedicated to covering gun violence and was designed and built by Upstatement. On the website, you can access resources by both neighborhood and category. 
You can even print out a directory of the 31 participating organizations that provide resources around the city centering gun violence. And again, that is uptheblock.org. And you can follow them on Instagram at uptheblockphl. And well, folks, that is about it. I am Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom Join. Thank you to our neighbors for listening and engaging as always. And thank you to Kuvenda Media and to Sean Strother for this week's airing of Stronger Every Day. And until next time, good night, Germantown.